You know, not too often when we think about the Christmas story do we always think about the very purpose of why he came, the cross and the resurrection, right? I mean, he came as a baby. He came to heal the sick and even raise the dead. But wow, for himself to rise from the dead, to conquer death and sin, just that was his purpose. That's why he came to be a baby. Um, Awesome. Awesome reminder. Thank you, Marla and Juliana. Great job. Sometimes we have too rigid expectations, I think, for Christmas, right? Talking about expectations, um, my daughter and my wife love to grab a Christmas Hallmark romance movie every now and then, right? And if, if the word expectations doesn't come to your mind, you've never watched a Hallmark movie. Or you haven't watched enough of them. And we've watched plenty. Um, The truth, though, is that they have an expected outcome. It's so expected after Juliana and Meredith were watching a Hallmark movie. And I just, I I, I watched the kind of the beginning just to to see where this plot would go, and I kind of figured it out. But when it was all done, you know, I had left. I watched only a little bit, and when I came back, it was, the movie was over. I was in the kitchen, and so Juliana and I had a little discussion. So I asked her, so, did you get the girl? Juliana looks at me and says, well, actually, he didn't, Dad. He turned out to be a serial killer. It was tragic. For a moment, maybe even just half a moment, me thinking, cool plot twist. Maybe she falls for her psychology counselor. Half a moment later, and no less, Juliana adds, and then he killed her. Me still thinking, well, that's a bit hard to redeem and come back from. But I wonder. Another half moment later, Juge adds, and then... He also died in a car accident. This is me. Well, it's, an, it's nice to see Hallmark's willing to break their typical mold and expectations, if only, right? Now, the, the truth, though, I say that tongue-in-cheek. Well, here it is Christmas, and I'm talking about mass murders, right? <laughs> not what you expected. Anyway, we're not too different than Hallmark movies, just to be honest with you. We, too, want life to be predictable, we, we want our daily expectations to be fulfilled. So what I want to do is I, I want to talk about those expectations, especially expectations at Christmas. I remember when I went to school, I actually had this audacious expectation that one day I would graduate. Lo and behold, I did. I also had this expectation when I was courting Meredith that one day I would propose to her and she would actually say yes. And to my amazement, one day she did. Of course, I had to ask, and then she said yes. Then, of course, there was me going to seminary and to graduate from seminary, which, instead of happening right after college, happened three years, at least when I actually started seminary. Graduation was a bit of a question mark, not because I didn't do well, but because the money ran out. But God had different plans, and I actually was able to graduate. I had expectations of kids, and God blessed me with five. I think all of us have expectations. My expectations um, many times went unfulfilled. And I think all of you can share in this hope, this expectation, and then just to have those expectations dashed. See, before we came to Orlando back in 94, I had expectations of pastoring a church in Albany, New York, and that fell through. The man to mentor me when we actually came to, all, to Orlando to plant the church, before it even got off the ground, was diagnosed with cancer, and he died that year. One of my daughters went through a serious physical problem. The outcome was that she would not be able to bear children should she get married. Another one of my daughters, during a routine 30-minute operation, almost bled out and almost died on the operating table. Six hours later. 
And then one of my closest friends two years ago actually did die in a fatal car accident, a freak fatal car accident. Not exactly my expectation in life. We all have expectations when it comes to life, though. And God seems to usually have different plans. When we're talking about Christ being born, the Messiah being born, there were expectations in Judea. There were expectations throughout Israel about what this Messiah, this prophesied Messiah would be. And when I'm talking about predictions, I'm talking about very specific predictions. Actually, Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies in his lifetime. I I have come to, over the last several decades, love apologetics, the study of evidences for the Christian faith. There's no other religion on the face of the earth that even comes close to the evidence of there being a God, of, of the Messiah being who he said he was, Jesus, God come in the flesh. And Jesus fulfilling 300 predictions in the Old Testament. I'm just going to read a few to you. This prediction we find in in Numbers 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And in Psalm 2, this is a messianic psalm. It refers initially to King David, but ultimately to the Messiah who would reign. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You will rule over them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just referring to his redemptive judgment there. Again, in Micah 5.2, maybe we're a little bit more familiar with this one. This says, but to you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And then, of course, Luke, when the angel Gabriel appears to her, and he says this, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus, which in Hebrew means deliverer, savior, rescuer. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. He would be born a king. He would reign over an expansive kingdom. He would be called the son of God. God in the flesh. A savior. A deliverer. And then he would finally be born. And then when he was finally born, Luke tells us how it happens. It says, so jo- in Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 4, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David. God issued something through a king that there would be a census made to be taken. You had to go to your hometown, and for them, that would be Bethlehem. The prophecy in Micah 5.2 said that the Messiah would be a king. He would be born in Bethlehem. Not just Bethlehem. There were two Bethlehems. But Bethlehem Ephrata of the region of Ephrata. Very specific. I mean, how does a Messiah try to do that? To be born in a particular place. And yet, Mary and Joseph, both of which actually, when you look at their genealogy in Matthew 1, Luke 3, they were from the line of David. They needed to go to the town of David, Bethlehem, in order to to complete the census. And there, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, there in Bethlehem, Jesus was born. You can feel this sense of divine direction, mandate, movement towards something of amazing fulfillment. 
and all of the Jews, understand, of their day had certain expectations. The Messiah to be, be king, right? The story goes on. He'd be born in the town of David, Bethlehem, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there, that is Joseph, went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child while they were there. Please don't get this idea that as they get there, immediately she gives birth. But while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. I mean, wouldn't you be? But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened. Which the, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had see, heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Can I just pray right now? Father, thank you for the power of your word. Your word is truth. There's life in these words, God. And these words are about your son, Jesus. And Father, as, as I speak about your son, Jesus, today, would you... By your spirit, speak to our hearts. Something that when we leave this place will touch us. And in some way, by your amazing grace, encourage us, challenge us, maybe even transform us. Spirit of God, do this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He would be in the line of David, this Messiah. His parents would go to Bethlehem, to the town of David. She would be a virgin. She was only pledged to be married, and yet she was pregnant. And Scripture tells us, actually, this ver this, the, the angel Gabriel, when he appeared just in the earlier chapter, nine months prior, told Mary that you are actually pregnant because the Holy Spirit has overshadowed you. Not through some other man, not through Joseph, not through some soldier as the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud that was written around 200 AD, suggested. But rather by the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus. Born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14 says. Born of a virgin, a miraculous birth. So, so far, the expectations of the ordinary Jew would be satisfied. Cool. Line of David, born a king, parents go to Bethlehem, that's where he's supposed to be born, right? Born of a virgin, miraculous birth. I get that. But see, there's more. When this king, who has yet to be born, comes to Bethlehem, they discover that there's no room in, the Greek word here is kataluma. In your version, it may read in. Luke uses this word only twice in his gospel. The other time in which he uses it, it is properly translated guest room, not in. In the parable, 
of the Good Samaritan, which we find in the gospel according to Luke, Luke uses a different word for the inn. Remember the Samaritan finds the Jew beaten, takes him to an inn? Different Greek word. I'm going to suggest to you that these, he's not finding no room in an inn, like a Motel 6 or a Holiday Inn or a whatever your favorite inn might be, Best Western. Rather, this was a guest room, apparently already set up, but when he arrives, it had been taken, and there was no room in the guest room. Where else would he stay? Apparently, they had some place out back. Tradition says that it was a cave. We don't know for sure. But we do know this, that he was laid in a manger. And this is a feeding trough. Now, this Greek word for manger, Luke uses throughout this chapter, but he uses it one other place in... <coughs> excuse me. He uses it in one other place, and that would be in Luke chapter, sorry, a little bit later in Luke, chapter 13, I think, verse 45. And in that passage, it's translated stall. So I want you to imagine that this is not, as some have suggested, maybe the first floor of the Kataluma. But rather, this is not private, it's public. It's out in the open. And in this open area, probably something similar to a stable where there's a stall, and more than likely not a wooden manger, but more than likely a stone feeding trough. The Bible doesn't say that it was laid on hay, though, oh my goodness, I would hate to contradict tradition, right? But there he is, regardless, out in public, not necessarily December, but we'll live with December 25th, I guess. And there he is laid there in a feeding trough. A feeding trough generally for horses or donkeys or cattle. There he is. God, the angel said the son of the most high born, he would be laying there in a feeding trough. Not my expectation, were I a Jew, of how this Messiah would be born. And I would just want to tell you that God has a way of taking our expectations and kind of rubbing his hands together and saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. Those are your expectations, and it's as if God delights in blowing up our expectations and doing something totally different because he has better intentions. Better, and can you believe that? Better intentions. God has generally a different goal than you and I have. We have a very short-sighted, temporal goal. His goal is eternal. His goal is perfect. His goal is not short-sighted. But he's looking down the road. And sometimes the things that happen in your life, that you look at it and you say, come on, God, where are you in this mess? God says, can you be patient? And he starts working these things together. And before you know it, the way it turns out, if we're trusting him along the way, is like, God, you are so good. So here is Mary and Joseph. They're giving birth to the Son of God, and they're not doing it in a palace. Do you see a palace anywhere here? Nowhere. You don't see any palace guards. You don't see any trumpets blaring. You see angels appearing. And who do they appear to? Royalty? Shepherds. Shepherds. Shepherds were like the blue-collar workers of their day. They were the ones who got down in the dirt. They were the ones who had... who who smelled, who, who reeked of sheep. They were the ones that the angels appeared to. Now, if I could just take a moment right now, because some of us, when we looked up the Christmas story, at least maybe the last couple of years, we may have discovered something a little bit amazing. 
and this is the general nature of the internet. And so I, I, I don't want to just shoot this down, but I just want to say, guys, let's be cautious when we look at stuff online and what, the peop what people say, and they are never the experts, by the way, but they've heard what an expert has said who probably heard it from another expert. Albert Edersheim, who wrote the book, The Life and the Times of Jesus the Messiah, wrote many decades ago, big thick book. He suggested, and by the way, he would be an expert, not necessarily right, but we'll allow him to speculate. He said, more than likely, these shepherds were tending temple sheep. That is for sacrifice. They probably hung out near Jerusalem. By the way, Bethlehem is over five miles from Jerusalem. They probably hung out in that big open space and taking their sheep miles away and then bringing them. And they would generally allow the sheep to give birth in what's called Migdal Eder. Migdal Eder would be a tower, the bottom floor of which would be stone and it would be a, a birthing place. Tradition from the Talmud suggests that these sheep were wrapped in swaddling clothes and that they would then be prepared for sacrifice. And the reason why they were wrapped was so that they wouldn't hurt themselves. These sheep would be wrapped so that they wouldn't bump or bruise themselves because only perfect lambs, one year old, were to be sacrificed several months later on the day of Passover. Well, he speculates here. And so people have suggested, isn't that amazing? And they've misunderstood him. And so they say that the sheep knew, excuse me, the shepherds, not the sheep, the shepherds, when they heard the angels announce, knew exactly where to go. They went to Migdal Eder, which would be, we don't really know, but it appears to be somewhere near Bethlehem. But by the way, it's not an archaeological site that you can visit. But it, it's, it's something that is talked about twice in the Bible. But it appears to be somewhere between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And so they knew exactly where to go. Why? Because the Messiah would be cradled in swaddling clothes just like a lamb. And wasn't Jesus the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Now, all I'm going to suggest is w when we do research, when we get online, can I just add a bit of caution because Albert Edersheim did not say that's where they went, but that's maybe where the shepherds were when they heard the announcement. They had to go to Bethlehem from there. Jesus was not born in Migdal Eder. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. In going to Bethlehem, though, how would they know where he is? Did they have to go knocking on every door? Hey, we heard... You know, some angels, you know, as soon as they said angels, they probably got the door slammed in their face. Yeah, right, shepherds, you've probably been drinking too much. No, they didn't have to do anything like that. What did the angel or the angel tell them? This will be a sign to you. You need to go to Bethlehem, and there you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. This sign, most people, when they look at a, the concept of a sign, they think immediately of a miraculous sign. And truly, there were many miraculous signs. Jesus many times gave miraculous signs. He healed people. So historical are these miracles that those who are opposed to Jesus because he broke the Sabbath regularly by healing on the Sabbath. And after all, he was crucified. 200 years later, in the Babylonian Talmud that I mentioned earlier, they suggest that the reason why he did miracles is because he was a sorcerer. Now, Jesus had to encounter that even in his own ministry. You have Beelzebub, and you do these miracles by the power of Beelzebub. And that got carried on. I would like to, to know from those writers, why didn't you just suggest that Jesus never did the miracles in the first place? Why didn't you just say, never happened? Can I tell you why? Because all of them knew it did. All of them knew that Jesus did. 
because that would be the easiest route to refute Jesus being the Messiah, wouldn't it? But instead, they came to the conclusion, no, he actually did these miracles. He must have done it by the power of the devil. So I'm going to suggest that if anyone would have wanted to refute his miracles, his miraculous signs, it would be his enemies, those who sought to crucify him. But they couldn't. And so they wrote it off, well, he's, he's a sorcerer. So we expect, or many people expect, signs to be of a miraculous nature. But there are signs that are given that even the New Testament refers to that aren't necessarily of a miraculous nature. I'm going to suggest to you that this sign that was given to him was not of a miraculous nature, except for the fact that he was born of a virgin. But, I mean, how do you prove that, right? You're a shepherd. And so they, 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 they realize that this sign is supposed to point them in the right direction. Isn't that what a sign is supposed to do? I mean, it's supposed to. When you drive down I-4 and it says exit Lake Mary Boulevard and you get off, you're expecting to end up on where? Up 40, Route 46? I, I hope not. But on Lake Mary Boulevard, signs point you in the right direction. So here they are. This is a sign. God wants to lead them to the Messiah. How are they going to find the Messiah? They don't go to Magdalator. They go to Bethlehem. And apparently as they're walking down the road, and if I'm a shepherd, I'm kind of wondering, okay, we're looking for a kid in a manger. How odd is this? Isn't he supposed to be the son of God? Isn't he supposed to be the Messiah? Isn't he supposed to be a king? You, we should go to Jerusalem and look for a palace there. But no, they obeyed and they go to Bethlehem and not privately in a home, but publicly out in the open, they see a stable or a cave that's a stable or something of this nature where you care for animals. And they see a light. I mean, guys, understand they're not doing this in the dark. So they see a light and they follow the light in and there, to their amazement, is a baby laying in a feeding trough wrapped in swaddling clothes, which generally is what you would do because babies can get startled. So you wrap them up nice and snug. It's not necessarily because it was cold. We don't know if it was cold or not, but there he is, wrapped up snugly in a feeding trough. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, sent from heaven... The angels of God announcing to shepherds, this is amazing news that will be for all people. I mean, you got to tell people about this. Where do we go? Like Jerusalem? No, nope. I, I want you to go to Bethlehem because that's where he's born. And you're going to find him in a feeding trough. Not a typical Jewish expectation. God would be born in a stable, a humble birth. Can I be honest with you? I think many in our day are really seeking truth. They, they may not know what it looks like. They, for, for most people in America anyway or in the West, truth is equated to opinion. You have your personal truth, and you have your personal truth, and we have lost our definition of truth. See, church, truth, truth is fact. Try telling that truth is opinion to your math teacher after you get an F on your test. Hey, teacher, it's just my opinion, okay? That's the truth, right? I wrote the truth. Two plus two equals five. I believe it. It must be. And that's our definition of truth in our day. We have lost our definition of truth. Truth is fact. The truth is that is, is something I think that whether we're aware of it or not, we all seek. We all want to be in on the truth. We all want to know something of the truth, especially if it's cloaked in mystery, right? 
I, I think most people, when they're seeking the truth, whether they discover it or not, but they, they too want a sign from God. If this is true, then show me it's true. I've talked to many people like this. I would say I used to be one of those. If there is a God, then prove it. Show me. By the way, the Magi were given a sign that was miraculous. But the shepherds weren't given a miraculous sign. Sometimes God does unusual things to get our attention, but sometimes he just simply wants to use the ordinary. And I want to ask you, what type of ordinary things is God doing in your life to lead you to him? And if you're expecting this miraculous sign, someone writing in the sky, Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and that there's no pilot in that airplane, and somehow that's, mirac- well, that's a sign from God. I'm just going to encourage you, he's probably not going to do it that way. Probably. I guess he could do it. God can, if he can make man and his intelligence, he can make planes out of nothing. But I'm going to guess that God is probably going to speak truth to you through an ordinary way. He might do it miraculously. I've experienced miracles in my life. But I didn't come to Christ and to an understanding of the truth in a miraculous way. I would venture to say the miracle was simply that stubborn Mike Curtis at age 14, thinking that he knew everything. I mean, when you were 14, didn't you know everything? I'm, most people at 14 know everything. After 14, they start getting dumber and dumber. That's, a, a, that's what happened to me anyway. And in my understanding of truth, it, God, or, or, or my rejection of truth, and God bringing me that in itself, I would say was a miracle. The Spirit of God was wooing and winning my heart, yes. But it was through ordinary means. My brother sat down with me. See, I'd gone to church all my life. My dad was a choir director. I come from a long line of pastors and teachers, like all the way back to the 1600s, right? And my brother sits me down and he says, Mike, do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? And my initial thought was, seriously, Dan? Three years older than me. Friday, and you're talking about religion. Can we just do this maybe Sunday? I didn't say that to him. I wanted to say that to him. And instead, I'm just, uh, yes, I think, yeah, I mean, why not? Well, Mike, here's a little tract. Just kind of explain. Why don't you just read it? Oh, okay. Such resistance. Okay. So I start reading through the tract. It says, I'm going to heaven for the following reasons. And there were 17 reasons. And I thought, man, I've got this in the bag. I've got to fit at least one of these, and I'm going down. Keep the Ten Commandments. Man, yes. Mom and Dad weren't in, because it says honor your father. And my, you know, I broke that one, but they're not in the room. Check that one off, right? Uh, tithe. I got a dime that I would put in the offering plate, church, every Sunday morning. Come on, I was, I was a good little kid. Except, of course, when I cussed. I did plenty of that at age 14. But there I was, and I'm, I'm checking these boxes off, you know, do to others as they do to you. And I beat up my little brother like every day, like all the time. So he wasn't in the room. Check that one off, right? I received holy unction. And I thought, man, that sounds really spiritual. I'm sure I've done that at some point. Check that one off. Had no idea what it was. And I come down to the box, other. And I thought, check it off. I checked off all 17 boxes. I had heaven in the bag. And then the next verse says this. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. Not by your own works. So that no one can boast. And I had just checked 17 words. Good for me. I lied, but good for me. But I was still in rebellion against God. And I still was frustrated. And as I kept reading, I began to realize this is true. And I can't tell you how I knew this, except that the Spirit of God began to minister to me. And began to break down my frustrations and my resistance to God, to religion, 
I mean, I was the type of guy, I would wake up Sunday morning, I would play sick so that I could get out from going to church. And so there I was, 14 years of age, and the Spirit of God began to convict me. Convict me of my sin, yes, but, con but to convict me of what was true. I wasn't seeking the truth. God just did it in a very ordinary way. Some of us, we want God to reveal himself in a very miraculous way. I'm not saying he doesn't do that, but just don't be surprised if he doesn't. Don't be disappointed. See, what are your expectations of God? To make himself and his truth evident? They want faith. I know I wanted faith to be easy. Just recite a creed. Be good. I would suggest that there's also some expectations for God to answer their prayer their way and not God's way. For God to make life easier. I mean, how many of you want life to get harder? That your, your, your Christmas wish list, the very top says, I want life to be harder. Any takers on that one? Okay, great. All right, yep. Santa Claus, by the way, did not get that letter, all right, with that as number one. If you were afraid, no, he didn't. But most of us, we want life to be easier. Most of us, we want life to be simpler. Most of us, we just want some of the evil in this world to stop. I would love that. But for some reason, when I have spoken with a number of my agnostic friends through the years, they have related to me, Mike, if there truly is a God in heaven, why is there so much pain and suffering and evil in this world? And the question really is implying, why did God allow all of this? And I share with them, can I just tell you the truth about this? That God didn't create this world this way. God didn't create the world with sin. God didn't create the world broken. Airplane crashes in which freak accidents, birds flying into the cockpit and the, the plane crashing. Horrible. God didn't do that. God didn't create our world broken. The honest truth is, guys, you and I did that. We broke God's perfect creation because Mike Curtis sinned. I, I, I mean, I get it. Adam and Eve, historically, they were the ones who first sinned. But guess what? I bear that burden to you. And newsflash, you do too. We all bear this burden. And it would be great if God could just make all of that evil go away. Guess what, guys? One day he will. But right now... He's not. And for the expectation that, one, that he should do it now, I, I'm wondering, and, and, and I'll ask this question, like how much evil do you want God to take away? How much evil do you want him to stop? Because apparently God's on the hook. Because if he's a good, loving, all-knowing God, then he should do this, right? Somehow he's obligated. Love obligates God to stop some evil. So I asked him, I said, well, how much evil would you like him to stop? How much evil would you like him to stop against you? Or how much evil would you like him to stop you doing? How much evil do you want him to stop? Because if he's obligated to stop some evil, church, he's on the hook for all evil. He is obligated to stop all evil. And if he stops all evil, where is free will? And if he stops free will, where is love? See, there's no such thing as love. For man to have a loving relationship with God, he must have the opportunity to choose. If someone ever confesses they love you and you see a gun to their head, don't believe them. The truth, though, is that God created a world in which he wanted man the free choice to love him or reject him. Well, guys, guess what we did? 
we chose to reject it. Not an all-out hatred against God. I mean, really? No, of course not. Just a little bit. Just a little bit of Mike Curtis in there. A little bit of selfishness. A little bit of me. But that's called sin. And sin broke the world. God has a plan, though. And see, that's what Christmas is all about. God's purpose, God's plan, his perfect plan is for the Son of God to become just like you and me. Retaining his godness, if you will. But see, he wasn't, they, they weren't just given a sign. That sign was that the Son of God would be a baby. He would be a human being. He would be born as a baby to parents. Hang with me. That means he was born in frailty. That means he had needs. I mean, when I look at Luca, after I'm just complete, <laughs> you don't have to stop him. <coughs> after I wake up from all that adorableness and cuteness overwhelming me, I realize that even Luca, close his ears, even Luca's a fallen creature. And, and it, it, though his world is all about him. But Luca has needs. And his mom and dad need to take care of those needs. I mean, grandparents and siblings and such can help. But they have to be the ones that wake up in the middle of the night because he's hungry, crying. And they have to change a poopy diaper. Come on, kid, in the middle of the night, really? And yet, see, Jesus did this too. He was a human just like you and me. And he was born to parents that he depended upon. Here is God born in the flesh now dependent upon human parents. That's humbleness. That's frailty. That's weakness. He was willing to, God, willing to submit himself in this form. Because he has a destiny. And I loved Marla's and Juliana's skit because we see, we hear of the birth, but we hear of the destiny. We hear of the miracle of Christmas, and then we hear the miracle of his death and resurrection. <laughs> Sorry, maybe I'm the only one who can hear that. He said amen in his own way. Most of us, I think, we want life to be easy. We have expectations, and we want God to somehow stop some of this evil. And yes, he will one day, but the truth is, guys, God's purpose isn't just to stop all evil. And don't get me wrong. See, I, I've seen God do this. I've seen him step in on occasion and stop evil and take what's evil and turn it around for amazing good. But we want life to come easy. We want... we. I'm a risk assessor. That's my personality. I assess risk, and I, if I feel there's too much risk, I don't do it. That's me. Anybody else like that? You, you, you run from risk? Okay. Am I the only one? Luca, you're okay. Some of us, this is what we do, right? But when you reduce life to no risk, really, there's no life. If you reduce it to no risk, there's no opportunity for faith. See, there is risk throughout your life. God doesn't just remove all the risk. I'm looking forward to heaven in part because there's no risk. I love it. You can do ex extreme sports and let me not get into that. The truth, though, is that we want this risk. We want this life to be easy. And the truth is, in that type of life, there is faith. And here's what I've discovered. That Jesus, born into frailty, busted the Jewish mindset expectations of what the Messiah should be like. How he would come. Not in a palace, but in a stable, in a feeding trough. And I would venture to say that maybe each of us should pause for a moment and think, what type of expectations do I have of God? What type of expectations do I project? Maybe not even aware of it. Expectations of God. And yet, God has this 
uncanny way. So uncanny, I've entitled the message, Our Odd God. Because God looks at our circumstances and we say, this is terrible, God. And he's saying, man, this is perfect. Because as Mike Curtis discovers that he is so weak with his back up against the wall, wondering, how are you going to do anything in this situation, God? I've tried everything and it's fallen flat on its face. What are you going to do? And God rolls up his sleeves. And rarely does it just turn out the way I expect. And God has this ability to turn things around. And maybe it's years later, I have the privilege, sometimes I don't, but the privilege of being able to look at it and say, wow, God, that, that's what you were doing. That is amazing. There's character, like humility and patience that he needed to build in my life. And I would have preferred that he take the safe way to do that. But he didn't. And it was filled with risk. It was filled with failure. And he has humbled me over and over and over. I have failed at so many things, church. I could write books just on how many things I did that failed. And God looks at that and he says, mission accomplished. Because in this process, this divinely orchestrated process, I have found myself weak, even at points weeping, and just saying, God, I need you right now. And God chose to step in in his way and show me just how strong he is. As Paul said, in my weakness, that's when I'm strong. It's in my weakness that God's strength is perfected. So I'm not always grumpy or disappointed when my expectations aren't met. I mean, I do get disappointed, but the truth is I begin to realize, well, the Christmas story tells me that God loves to break that expectation mold and do something so much more amazing. And so here is Jesus busting all expectations of what a Messiah, where he would be born, how he would be born, how he would grow up, the things that he would do, and the death that he would die, he busted all of our expectations. Because God has this divine overarching purpose, and it's redemptive in its nature. You know, Diego shared his testimony just this past Sunday. Great job again, by the way. And Diego came to America with expectations. Now, not all of his expectations were good expectations. But he wanted, you know, this is a new life. I'm away from home, and I've got, my, I've got this life. And he admitted that some of it was sinful, but he had a life to live. And God, as it, it, it was as if he said, nope, I've got something so different for you. And he, extraordinary situation in which, Jenny Rose was doing her senior paper and interviewing, I think, a dozen people, those who were Hispanic, in which Spanish was their primary language, but now going to churches in which that was English was the primary language, and it was only their secondary language. And so how do you acclimate? How do you fit in? What do you do? And if I'm not mistaken, her appointment, one of her appointments fell through and someone recommended Diego or Diego was just one of those that got on her list. So she went and she interviewed him. We were having a, a conference, a homeschool conference shortly after that interview and Diego decided to come. And Diego had no idea what he was in for. Though he did share with some of you, God began to minister to him. God began to show him real Christianity in, in, in really fallible people. And I was one of those fallible people, fallible church. And through various people, fallible like me, fallible like Diego, began to show what authentic Christianity looks like in our frail, fallible way. And it got his attention. And through a process of God just taking Diego's expectations 
of what he wanted to accomplish in coming to America, God began to do something so very different. God had a different goal than Diego did. And Diego eventually submitted to that goal. And God won by winning Diego's heart. And Diego stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And God began to change his life. There were issues that he wrestled with. And one of them, I won't go into detail, but he came to me and said, Pastor Mike, what do I do? And he prayed over him. And God has set him free miraculously of some of these issues because he just yielded to God and said, God, I want and I need you. So here's my question. Here it is. Christmas is in two days. Now, you're not little kids anxiously awaiting what's wrapped for me under the Christmas tree. Though I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of wondering, but the truth is, kind of grown up out of that. So when I say, what are your expectations for Christmas? I'm not talking about that. But what are your expectations for Christmas for your Christmas wish list that goes beyond that nice Rolex gold watch that you own? Anybody here? I didn't think so. The truth, though, is that we have expectations for what maybe is coming up this year. What are your expectations? What if God doesn't meet those expectations? Can you trust him? So I'm going to just leave you with this. Number one, can you trust him first and foremost with your life? For me at 14, that's what it took. That's when I stepped into this journey with God. And then from then on, it's been a roller coaster ride watching to see how weak I am and yet how very strong he is. To have my back purposely by God pressed up against the wall just so that I come to the end of myself and said, God, I can't, but I believe you can. And for God to say, you better believe I can. And for him to step in as he wants and do what he needs for his glory and for my good. See, that's his promise. All things work together for the good of those who love God. And I hope that's you this coming year, that you're willing to trust him. Not with all of these expectations, set some of those aside and just trust him for every day to do something so very good in your life, even through the horrible times. Can you stand with me, church? Jesus, I want to thank you for the power of your word. It's truth. I know it changed my life 50, almost 50 years ago. And I know that it can continue to change lives today. Thank you for how it changed Diego's. So many here, Lord. It changed their lives. And so I just pray, Father, this Christmas, may that be the gift that we, some of us open up. Truth. The truth of who Jesus is. The truth of what Christmas is all about. The truth of what it means to be in relationship with a God that loves us so much he's willing to allow us to go through hard times just to show off his love. And so, Father, I pray for every single one of us this Christmas, this coming year, to experience your grace by setting expectations aside and stepping into faith and seeing that you can do it. God, you're good, and I thank you for that. Minister this truth to our hearts tonight in Jesus' name.